I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I want to ask you guys, what is your calling? What do you think of when you hear the word calling? Maybe some of you feel that you were called to be a missionary someday. Maybe some of you feel that you were called to be a lawyer or a doctor. Maybe some of you feel called to be a dad or a mom or a wife or a husband. And these are all good things. Uh, These are good callings. But this is not the type of calling that um, the author of Ephesians Ephesians has in mind in this text. Because we know this, because these callings that we think of when we hear the word calling are individualistic. That's something that we envision for ourselves personally. And they're also personal and it's about personal ambitions and personal kind of accomplishments, but that's not what Apostle Paul or, uh, has in mind here in this text. Because when he says, in a, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, the you here is plural. It's not a singular you. So you, church, live in a, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is this calling? It's a calling that's collective. It's a communal calling that we receive together as a church. What else can we know about this calling? We know that this is not about our individual accomplishments or personal ambitions. We know that because this is a passive construction. It's a calling to which we have been called. It's not something that we claim for ourselves or dreamed up for ourselves. It's something that God called us to. So God is the one that initiates. He's the one that brings us to this calling. So we know that those two things, so we know that this is not about our personal ambitions or accomplishments or dreams that we have for ourselves, but it's a call that God brings us to. And he says walk here because walk, this word symbolizes our whole life. It's the way we live. That's why in our um, mission statement, it says we are to wholeheartedly love God and one another by worshiping, witnessing, and walking in the good news of Jesus Christ. We walk in it. That's how we live. We do everything with uh, the gospel at the center of what we do, with Jesus Christ as the goal of our lives. So that's what we're at to do. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But what is this calling? If it's not those kind of individual dreams, then what is this calling? So because this is a main exhortation, I want to take you guys through these three steps uh, throughout this message. The first is going to be, what is it? We're going to figure out what this calling is. What is the calling to which we have been called? And then secondly, I want to show you guys why we have to live according to this calling. Why should we live and walk in a manner worthy of this calling? And then we're going to talk about how. How can we do this? How can we walk in a manner worthy of this calling? So what, why, and how. And I'm going to walk through the first two rather quickly to dwell uh, for a longer time on, on how we can do this, how we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And uh, we can look at uh, the nature of this calling by seeing uh, what the context says in verse 4. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So this call that we got from God, uh, that's for all of us as a church, involves hope. And what is this hope? And the author of Ephesians told us this earlier in chapter 1, what this hope is. If you can look at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, I think we have that up on the screen. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? If you skip forward a little bit, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this hope that we have then, this call that we have from God then, in other words, is a call to the hope of salvation. The salvation that God has called us to. It's the hope of the inheritance and the power that we have in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And because Christ is the head over all things, we as his body is supposed to fill as his body, to fill all things as fullness of him. We are the fullness of his body. And this language, this passage also gives us the clue to what this call is in verse 13 and 15. In verse 13, it says, Attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, that fullness language. Our calling is about growing into this fullness of Christ. This is our goal. And it says in verse 15, verse 15, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, how many of you guys have noticed uh, I noticed this not that long ago, but when you look at infants, have you noticed that they have huge heads? I mean, so, and I, you wonder why, right? Why are their heads so big? <laughs> and, and the reason why is because infants, right, their heads are actually kind of, it's, it's not that small in relation to where their body's going to be in the future. So it doesn't grow as much as the rest of the body. So it's kind of already close to the full size that it's going to be. That's why it's so big. So that's kind of the same idea here is that we have our head, Christ, who is huge, who is big, and our body, we need to fill that body up to, be, to, to grow into that head, which is Christ. And our, job, our calling is to grow up into the fullness of him, to fullness of who Jesus Christ is. We need to reflect that as the church. That's our calling. So to put it concisely, this is going to be an important point that I keep driving home, is our calling as a church is to grow up into unity in Christ. Our calling as a church is to grow up into unity in Christ. And this is not just about the people that's in here within the four, four walls of the church because this has cosmic missiological implications because if God, if Christ is the head over all things, not just us in this church, but head over all things and we are his body, then we need to fill up the whole universe because Christ is over all. We need to fill up the whole universe with God's glory. That's our calling as a church. Fill up this whole cosmos with the glory of God, with who Christ is. So this is the calling to which we have been called, to grow into unity in Christ. And that's why in Ephesians 1, if you can turn with me there or look at the screen, chapter 1, 7 to 10, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, this is important right here. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's not just to unite those who have put faith in God, it's to unite all creation and to submit all creation to him and to his rule. That's our calling as a church. It's huge. This is the calling that we have. 
So that is the calling. What exactly is the calling to which God has called us? It is to grow into unity in Christ. But why should we grow into unity in Christ? What, what is in it for me? What is in it for us? The unity is motivated by our theological oneness. Let's turn to chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 here. Continuing, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this tells us, actually, that this unity is not something that we have to accomplish, not something that we have to earn to bring about, to work to bring about, something that's already true. We are already one in Christ. This is a spiritual reality that Christ accomplished. And we know that because if you look at verse 3, it says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You're not supposed to attain the unity of the Spirit here. It says maintain it because it's already yours. So the unity of the Spirit is already ours. And then after that it says, do this in the bond of peace. So what brings this unity, what bonds us together is peace. And peace comes from the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. And that's how we know that it's what Christ has done for us, what he has accomplished on the cross that brings us together, that has accomplished this. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do this on our own. So Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has broken down the walls of hostilities that used to divide us. He brought together the Gentiles and the Jews. He brought together the free and the slave. He brought together all of us. He broke down our ethnic barriers. He broke down our class barriers because he died for all of us together. And he's, what he has accomplished on that cross brings us together as one. So this tells us that Christian unity that we're supposed to grow into is not a denominational one. It's not an organizational one. It is a mystical reality. It's a spiritual reality that Christ has already accomplished. And that's why we have one body. There's only one body on this earth, like we were singing earlier. We are the hope for this world that God has placed on earth to testify to his goodness, to his faithfulness. There's one body in the, in the world. That's the church. There's one spirit. We all have the same spirit. When we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts, we receive the Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit that brings us together. There's only one hope. Only Christ is the hope for this world. When Christ comes in judgment to judge the righteous and the unrighteous, when he comes to renew all things and to bring about a new creation, that's our hope. We only have one hope as Christians. We only have one Lord. Because we only have one Lord, we only have one directive. So we don't have a conflict of interest. We all have one purpose, one goal. We only have one faith. Yes, people believe different things, but there is only one true Christian faith. There's only one baptism. For the last 2,000 years, everybody, every Christian was baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's something really special that happens when we do this. In, in this month, we're going to have some people baptized in our church in the same way, name the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the one baptism as a church. And most importantly of all, and this is the climax, this is the the most important reason for our unity, why we should grow into unity in Christ, that is there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because we have one God, there's only one God, we ought to be united if we're serving him, right? Because there's only one God, we have no excuse for division. 
Because if we did have more than one God, then there would be conflict of interest. There will be people disagreeing. But because we only have one God, we are one. And when we are not one, when we are divided, when we are disjointed, that casts doubt on the people outside looking in. They see that you claim to have one God and one Lord, but you don't seem to have that at all. Maybe there is no God after all. Maybe there is no one true God. So that casts doubt on our credibility, to, on the credibility of our testimony that there's one God and one Lord when we are dis, we're disjointed and we are divided. That's why we need to be united in Christ. But if this is something that Christ has already accomplished, why do we have to grow into it? Why do we have to attain it, like it says later in verse 13? So we may, we're supposed to maintain it, it says here in verse 3, and then it says we have to attain it later. So what's going on here? Do we have it or not, right? seems like he's it's contradicting himself here. So what we need to understand is maybe we could use this as an example since our brother Eddie shared about his hip replacement surgery, right? He, he, it's had a successful surgery and he's doing well now, but before, you remember, he was walking around with crutches, right? Why, why is that? He had a new hip. Why was he still walk, walking around with crutches? Because the body needs time to mold itself and adapt to the new hip that he got, right? It takes time. So in the same way, we have a new heart God has given us, but still we spend every day molding ourselves and adapting ourselves to what God has already done in us. We are already a new creation, but we live every day to make that more of a reality. Does that make sense? We are already one in Christ, but we live to consummate that reality, to make that more real, more true every day that we live. So that's our calling is to grow into unity in, in Christ. So let me just illustrate that to kind of bring it, to bring it home, to show you exactly what this looks like. So what does it mean for us to bear testimony to the oneness of God by being united? And Lindsey uh, Brown, I don't know if you guys know about him, he's a, he's a British guy who used to be the CEO of um, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which is a campus ministry uh, throughout the world. And uh, he, he told this story in his book, Shining Like Stars, which uh, tells the stories of, uh, of students in universities that are bearing testimony to the gospel. And it was in the early 90s during the Burundi uh, genocide. Um, this was happening was there were Hutus and Tutsis, two rival ethnic groups, and they were fighting against each other. Um, they hated each other. And uh, the tension was rising, and at this particular university in Burundi, called Bujumbura University, a few of the Tutsis were killed in an ethnic conflict. And uh, because they were scared for their life, the Tutsis fled the campus and they, they were hiding in the mountains. And as they were doing that, some of the Hutu Christians at this university to, decided to take a step of courage to take some food and clothing to these Tutsi Christians that were hiding in the mountains and also gave food and clothing to non-Christian Tutsis that were hiding. And this cost them a lot because by doing that, some of their family disowned them for putting the claim of Christ and the claim of Christian unity before the ethnic interests that they had. And seeing this, the president of this uh, Bujumbura University, who is not a Christian, seeing what these Christians... Tutsis have done, Hutus have done, he said this, our culture is disintegrating. On our campus, there are three types of people, Hutus, Tutsis, and Christians. If our culture is to survive, 
we must follow the example of the Christians. That's the testimony we bear by being united in Christ to the oneness of God, to the greatness of God. And people looking in will want to be a part of that. That's why we need to live and grow into the unity we have in Christ. So then, how are we supposed to do this? This is the main. uh, How are we supposed to grow into this unity in Christ? Whenever God calls us to something, he always gives us the means. And that starts in verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 68, 18, which in, origin, in its original context talked about Yahweh, God, coming down from his heavenly dwelling to deliver his people Israel. And then after his victory, he triumphantly ascends back up Mount Zion. And now the author of Ephesians here is adapting that and applying that to Christ because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He left his throne on the high. He left his heavenly dwelling to be incarnated as a human being on this earth. And then he died and rose again. And in doing that, taking captives with him, freeing the captives, he brings us, he liberates us, and then he ascends back to heaven. And when he does that, when he ascended, he sends us gifts because he sent us the Holy Spirit when he left. And the Holy Spirit, who imparts various spiritual gifts to us. And that's what the author is talking about here in verse 9 and 10. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this logic might be a little confusing to some of you, but it seems to be, what he seems to be saying is that since God already is on high, he can't go up anywhere unless he had already come down. So the fact that he ascended anywhere suggests that he had already come down beforehand. So that's what he's saying. So Christ, yes, because he, was, he, was, he had come down to earth, incarnated as a human being, that's why you can say of him that he ascended back into the heaven. That's the logic of verses 9 to 10. And what did he give us? What are the gifts that he gave to us to be able to help us grow into the unity in Christ? Verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Who are these people? This is, you have to notice this is really important. It says he gave gifts to men, but what he ultimately gives to the church are people. He's giving, he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to the church. So the focus then is not on the gifts that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the teachers and the pastors have, but the focus is on who they, what they're supposed to do with that gift, which is to be a gift to the rest of the body, to the church. That's the focus of the, the, these things. And who are these apostles? Apostles are the ones that were specially authorized by Christ to go and disseminate the message of the gospel and to lay the foundations for the church. And the prophets are those designated in the local churches as having prophetic gifts. They can do, they can, it involves foretelling what is going to happen in the future, but it also involves foretelling, being able to say, see things, perceive them as they are, and to speak the gospel truth into whatever situation. Evangelists, it's only used of two people in the New Testament, Philip and Timothy, and their primary job was to 
to engage non-Christians, to evangelize and to share the good news with them. And this is, doesn't mean that only the evangelists do evangelism because all of us are commanded to do evangelism. The Great Commission is that in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. But these evangelists are dedicated to doing it, devoted entire life to doing that and to equipping the body to how to do that better. And who are the shepherds and teachers? And this is interesting here because a lot of people separate the shepherds and the teachers. But in, in the Greek, there's only one article governing the two words. And that suggests that they're actually connected. So it's teaching pastors or teaching shepherds, which is why in our family of churches, we have elders we have that teach. We have pastors that teach. And they go hand in hand because if you're not a pastor and you don't know what's happening to the, to the flock, to the people, you can't effectively teach them. You can't know how to teach them better. And so those two things go hand in hand. And this also doesn't mean that only the teachers, only the pastors teach. It says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So every Christian does some of that. But these people, these teaching pastors were appointed and compensated for their teaching because that's what they devoted their life to. And pastoring, of course, suggests nurturing and care of the people uh, that are in the churches. And this leads us to a really important point. So if these apostles and the prophets, evangelists, and the teaching pastors are the ones that are building up the body of Christ, why doesn't it just skip that first part of verse 12? Right? It doesn't say, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for building up the body of Christ. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So if you thought that you were off the hook because there's these people doing work in the church, that's not true at all. Because their job, it seems like on Sundays, they do bulk of the work, right? The pastors preach and they have, you know, pastors care for the people. But they do that so that the rest of the body, all of you guys, can be equipped to do the work of ministry. All the saints, equipped all the saints. And each of us, it says in verse 7, we're given gifts. All of us, you guys have gifts. And all of you guys are called to serve and called to ministry. All of you guys are ministers in that sense. And that's how we build up the body of Christ is that we, the church, the people that have been called, that have been appointed and recognized by the local churches to do work in those capacities, as apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists and pastors, they equip the rest of the body so that we can all grow together in unity in Christ. Now, how, so we, we do this, but if, if we do this on, on Sunday morning, these people that have been appointed equip the rest of the body to do the work of ministry, what kind of work of ministry are you guys doing during the week? What kind of work of ministry are we supposed to do during the week? That question gets answered in the next few verses, starting verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. There's a lot of contrast running here throughout those two verses. Children are contra contrasted with the mature manhood or mature man, as it says literally. And the children is plural and the mature man is singular. Notice that this unity 
is a sign of immaturity. Unity is a sign of maturity. Children are contrasted with the mature man. And the tossed about is contrasted with joined and held together. Those who are not united, those who are not mature, are tossed about by every false teaching. But those who are held together, joined and held together, are united in Christ. And then deception is contrasted with speaking the truth. So how we are to do ministry then, how you guys can do ministry from Monday through Saturday and Sunday too, mainly is by speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? That's, that means we gospelize one another because the gospel is truth spoken to us in love. Because what does the gospel do for us? It doesn't sugarcoat anything, does it? It doesn't tell us, ah, oh, you guys are pretty good people. You just mess up here and there. You know? It tells us we're wretched sinners, doesn't it? And we need the Savior. It tells us the truth. But it tells us the truth in love. You see, everybody wants unity. You know, we live in the United States, and, and which is a part of the United Nations. We all seek unity. And I, I think of uh, the song by uh, John Lennon, Imagine. You guys know that song? Okay, what if there were no religion? There was no religion. There's no countries, and, you know, then everybody would have peace. You'd be one. You know, that's the kind of ideal that the culture outside of the church has. That's their ideal. That, that's their perception of what unity means. They, it's a relativistic society. They say, whatever is true for you is, tr- is, is true for you. I, I don't need to get in the way of that. I don't need to contradict that. It's true for you, so that's good for you, so do that. But this is not true unity because you can't have unity without the truth. If you don't have truth, then that's not unity. You're just covering up the disunity that lies underneath. And in order to have that, that's why we need to speak the truth in love. In order to have the gospel, we need to gospelize one another. We need to speak the truth to one another. I think of uh, the ecumenical movement. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, which began in, the ni- in 1910. Um, it began as a missions movement. They said, in order for us to evangelize the world, we need to become more united. We need to be more ecumenical. We need to be going across denominations and accepting one another instead of being divided. It was a great intention. However, what happened is that eventually they began to forfeit their doctrine. They began to say, love unites, but doctrine divides. So let's just love and not talk about doctrine. And then when that happened, eventually, people that didn't even believe that Jesus Christ died and resurrected from the dead, they were accepted into Christian communion. But we can't do that because we, can't, we have to speak the truth in love. We can't have love without truth. It's the same way. The people that you care for, you speak truth to them, don't you? If someone that you didn't really care for, uh, maybe, maybe a teenager or a stranger that you never met is driving down 90 miles per hour on the highway, I mean, would you, would you say something to them when you see them stopped? Maybe you will. Maybe that's, that's be the good thing to do, but most likely you won't. Right? But if it were your son or your daughter going 90 miles on the highway, you know they're going to get it, right? <laughs> Why? Why you tell the truth to them? Because you care for them. Same thing with a piece of art we have. If it's just a little sketch that I did in five minutes, I don't care about blemishes on the paper or little stains here and there. It's just a sketch. But if it's my masterpiece that I've spent my lifetime working on, I'm going to get rid of every single blemish. I'm going to speak the truth to that piece of art. It's the same. That's, that's what we have to do because we, we love one another. Because we really care for one another. Because the best way to love one another is to speak the truth to one another. That's why we speak the truth to each other. We share the gospel with each other. 
I heard a great example of this from a pastor at Grace Chapel in Boston. You guys know him. He, he was a former pastor there. His name's Gordon McDonald. Uh, he once told this story. He said, about 20 years ago, I was in a speaking tour in Japan with a close personal friend. He was a number of years older than I was. As we walked down the street in Yokohama, Japan, the name of a common friend came up. And I said something unkind. I was sarcastic. It was a put-down. My older friend stopped in his tracks, turned to me, and with his face right in front of me, he said sternly yet gently, Gordon, a man who says that he loves God would not speak that way about a friend. He could have put a knife into my ribs and the pain would not have been greater. But you know what? There have been 10,000 times in the last 20 years, that I have been saved from making a jerk of myself. When I'm tempted to say something unkind about a brother or sister, I hear my friend's voice. Gordon, a man who says that he loves God, would not speak that way about a friend. This is what we have to do for one another. We need to speak the truth to each other, not because we want to lift ourselves up and bring them down, but because we care for them, we want to lift them up. C.S. Lewis said, love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, he forgives most, but he condones least. He is pleased with little, but demands all. Because we care, because we love, we speak the truth. To one another so that we can grow up into unity in Christ. But this doesn't mean, now don't forget to hold your horses. Some of you guys really like speaking the truth. You don't just go throwing truth around going, oh, here's some truth for you. And we speak insensitively and offensively. No, we don't do that. Because what does it say? It says you speak the truth in love. How do we speak the truth in love? It tells us in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humbly, not to lift yourself up in pride, but to lift them back up. Gently, not to be harsh and violent in speaking the truth to them, but to gently bring them to repentance. Patiently, patience literally here means long, uh, long-tempered. <laughs> so don't be short-tempered with people. Speak the truth in love. Be patient. Allow for their faults and shortcomings. And above all, bear with one another in love. You have to value that person. Care for that person genuinely before you can speak the truth to them in love. And how can we do this? If you're like me, you fail a lot at speaking the truth in love. How can we do this? What encourages me here is that the word for head which says Christ is the head, also means source. The, the Christ then is the head. He's the goal to which we grow, but he's also the nourishment. He's the source from which we grow. Because Christ loved us, he died for us. Because he humbled himself. 
because he, his sacrifice on the cross and the atonement, we know that we're not better than anybody else because we all fell short of the glory of God. And because we know that, because Christ has done that for, the, for us, we can be humble when we speak the truth to other people. And Christ is gentle with us, isn't he? I, first, year, uh, first year of my marriage, um, I, was, I was quite harsh sometimes with Hannah. And, uh, and I, I wanted, wanted her to be better. I wanted her to be a better Christian. I wanted her to be a better wife. I wanted her to be a better person. And that's why I was telling her th- uh, these things. And yeah, like we said, we only speak the truth to the people that we care. But I was speaking the truth to her, but I was not speaking the truth in love. And then one day it hit me. If whenever I sin, Christ came to me and he said, Sean, you did that again? Really? How many times do I have to tell you not to do that? If Christ was like that with me, I would be crushed. He is always gentle with me. He always knows that even my vilest sins are deep inside a pursuit of the only thing, the thing that only God can offer, the thing that only God can satisfy. Even my vilest sins are a desire to find that. And God knows that. Christ knows that. So he's gentle with me. And that transformed my relationship with Hannah. Christ's gentleness to me enables me to be more gentle. And it's Christ's patience with us. He's bearing with one another, with us in love, that allows us to be patient, not to speak truth out of anger or impatience, but to speak the truth to one another in love and patience. This is how we ought to grow into the unity in Christ, by speaking the truth in love. So let me challenge you this week, King of Grace Church. Most people are good at one thing and not at the other. Some of you are very good at speaking the truth, but not good at doing it in love. To your kids, maybe to your spouses, maybe to your parents. Some of you are very good at being loving. You're kind of a man pleaser. That's kind of me. (laughs) You don't like to speak the truth to people, but you need to if you love them. So if you tend to fall on one side, if you like to speak the truth but not in love, this week, be loving. Do it in humbleness, in gentleness, in patience. But if you like to love people but don't like to confront people, you don't like to speak the truth, work up the courage. Remember that that's what Christ did for us when he gave us the gospel. And speak the truth in love. Because we grow up into unity in Christ by speaking the truth in love. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your truth. We love your truth because your truth tells us that you are good. Your truth tells us that you are faithful. Your truth tells us that you reign and that you are in control of this world when everything seems to be spiraling out of control. And we thank you for the truth that you love us, that you died for us, that you redeemed us from the pit and saved us so that we can be reconciled to you and to one another. Help us to model that love, Lord. Help us this week. 
to grow up into, the, into your fullness, to grow up into unity in you by speaking the truth to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Worship team can come up now. Sorry, I didn't give you guys a heads up. going to uh, sing again the, the song earlier about uh, about being redeemed greatest of all